The Night Owl Podcast, Episode 18, Pioneer Farms, Part 1. Welcome to the Night Owl Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Ballou, and this is a place for all you restless spirits out there to tune in and hear true tales of the paranormal. I hunt these stories down, capture them from the mouths of those who experience them, and share them with you right here. If you have a story to tell, we're currently looking for more personal ghost stories, so if you or someone you know has one, please submit it to us for consideration. Go to thenightowlpodcast.com, click on the Submit Your Story page, and let us hear your ghost story. We'd love to consider it for the show. In this episode, the team and I are kicking off a new investigative series at Pioneer Farms, a living history museum and historic site situated along the banks of Walnut Creek in Austin, Texas. The property was once home to an actual pioneer homestead dating back as far as 1844, and prior to that, archaeological evidence reveals that a Tonkawa tribe inhabited the area that runs along the creek as well. Now, the many volunteers reenacting the daily pioneer living activities on this 90-plus acre farm are wondering if maybe they aren't the only ones reliving the past on this property. Unlike any of our other cases, pioneer farms have proved to be one of the most challenging for us. As we realize, not only does this site have approximately 10 historic buildings and sites on it, but it also sits on nearly 100 acres of land that was once a Tonkwa Native American encampment and even had part of the famous Chisholm Trail cutting through the property. So get ready, listeners. This series will be rich with both history and haunts. Stay tuned. If you're new to the show, a quick note. This podcast is best devoured in chronological order, so we highly recommend that you stop here and begin your journey with us on episode 1, Ink, coffee, and spirits. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop. When you need custom t-shirts, this shop's got your back. At Oh Boy, they've made customer satisfaction and quality their top priorities. Their aim is to supply you with quality products that meet your every need. Specializing in custom screen printing for organizations, clothing companies, schools, businesses, and even events. Big or small, Oh Boy is here to help. Crisp, clean t-shirt printing without setup fees or hidden costs, and always delivered on time. Oboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y, printshop.com. And now, mention the Night Owl podcast and get $50 off your first order. I'd also like to announce that we have a new special offering for listeners of the show at one of our local favorite haunts, the Clay Pit. We investigated and featured this contemporary Indian restaurant in Season 1, and they've now partnered with us to offer a special Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu at their bar. On it, you'll find unique cocktails specifically designed with the show and the spirits we discovered at the Clay Pit in mind. This partnership is the first of many I hope to procure with past and future venues I feature on the show. It's a nice step in a new direction that I'd like to take our sponsorship. Instead of irrelevant ads trying to sell you products that you don't really care about, this is something relevant to the show and listeners. It helps out local businesses, gives listeners a unique experience that they can take part in, and lastly, it actually supports the show financially. Every drink you order off the Hidden Spirits menu at the Clay Pit, a portion of that comes right back to us. So go grab one of these special secret drinks at this haunted location and raise a glass to you, the spirits, and the show. Cheers, Night Owls, and thanks for the continued support. Remember, just ask for the Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu at the bar. When I first learned about Pioneer Farms, it took me a while to understand what it really was. So I'll try to explain it to you right off the bat. 
Pioneer Farms is actually a historic museum that covers more than 90 acres that was once the homestead of Frederick and Harriet Jordan, who settled there in 1858. The homestead was originally donated to the Heritage Society of Austin for a park in 1956. It was in 1975 when it was transferred to the Austin Natural Science Foundation and the Austin Parks and Recreation Department, who opened it as a museum. In 2015, the site was transitioned into the nonprofit Jordan Bachman Pioneer Farms Foundation, whose vision is to preserve and portray the lifestyles of the people who homesteaded on the Blackland Prairie of Central Texas during the 19th century. This site now features several buildings original to the site, as well as many other homes and buildings that have been relocated to Pioneer Farms for restoration and preservation. Living history tours, as well as demonstrations and instructional classes in pioneering skills, are offered to the public representing historical periods from 1841 through 1899. This case actually came to me in a unique way. In August of 2018, a good friend of mine, Erin Halligan, reached out to me with an opportunity. She is the founder and director of Story Bar, an amazing multidisciplinary arts initiative in Austin that focuses heavily on storytelling. Aaron had been listening to the show, really liked what I was doing with it, and wanted to partner up to host a ghost storytelling live event in October of 2018. The location she had procured for us was, you guessed it, Pioneer Farms. Before this, I'd not even heard of the place, but Aaron went on to tell me that the place was massive, beautiful, and most importantly, haunted. After hearing all this, I was thrilled not only to be co-presenting my first live event with Story Bar, but that we'd be having it on a haunted farm in Austin, Texas. Erin went on to tell me that she knew many of the folks that worked there and informed me that they were interested in being featured on my show. I was put in touch with one of the farm's longest working volunteers, Rhonda. Through her, I was able to procure a list of other witnesses to the strange activity reported on the farm and scheduled a visit to record personal accounts and also set up phone interviews with those that were unavailable for an in-person interview. What I ended up with was a large-scale account of the many unexplained happenings on this historic farm, and I can't wait to share it all with you. It was the late evening of August 17th, 2018, and my wife, Alexis, and I were on the road to Pioneer Farms. I turned off Breaker Lane onto Pioneer Drive, and I was surprised that my GPS said I was only a couple of minutes away from my destination. I had just turned off a major street in Austin and was now cutting through a newly developed neighborhood. But somehow, within moments, this road came to a sudden end and opened up into a large caliche parking lot. And ahead, I could see a small square village of pioneer buildings and homes. This 90-acre farm is tucked away behind a North Austin suburb and is enveloped by the banks of Walnut Creek towards the back edge of its property. As we hopped out of my truck, I quickly realized the uniqueness of this case, noticing the vastness of the property and the many historic buildings at this site. We grabbed our gear and headed to the large arched entry to the farm. Walking through it, it was like stepping back in time. We were now standing in the farm's reimagined version of Town Square, referred to as Sprinkle Corner Village. A caliche path forms a square around it, which consisted of approximately seven pioneer buildings and homes that were either transplanted and restored historic structures or recreated replicas. There's a post office, general store, blacksmithing lodge, and various homes. But beyond Town Square, the Caliche Path continues outward and beyond eyesight, heading to the southwestern edge of the farm, leading you far away from the square, half a mile into wooded trails that take you all the way to the banks of Walnut Creek. If you continue this trail, it'll circle you back up 
and around along the northeastern side of the property, running you by several other historic buildings and sites, and eventually brings you right back to Town Square. At night, there are no lights to guide you on this trail, just the light that the moon decides to provide, along with any flashlights you just so happen to bring along with you. At this time, our tour guide, which was a longtime volunteer of Pioneer Farms, Rhonda, greeted us at the village, along with several other volunteers and members of her own family. Most were still dressed in period clothing from the reenactments that they had done earlier in the day. They were all very eager to take us on a walking tour and share the many personal experiences that they'd had on Pioneer Farms. So let's strap on some imaginary hiking boots, because we're about to trek a half mile along a caliche path that cuts through the backwoods of Pioneer Farms, takes us by all the historic buildings and sites, runs us along the banks of Walnut Creek and the Tonkawa Encampment, and circles us right back around to Town Square. I'm Rhonda Leggett. I am one of the members of the Pioneer Farms Board of Governors. I oversee special events. I've been here since 2004. Most of the buildings here were moved in from other locations and were built in the various decades of the 1800s. A couple of the buildings are bits and pieces of other buildings that the whole building couldn't be salvaged, and so we were able to salvage like a storefront. A couple of the buildings were built for like the general store was built for the set of a movie and it's just a a nice coincidence that it matches a store that was in Gilesburg about 1880s, 1890s. So we do living history interpretation. We do the daily activities, uh, cooking, blacksmithing, woodworking, textile arts, just go about daily life. We're open to the public so the public can come in on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 10, between 10 and 5 and see what we do. We also offer classes in a lot of the, the pioneer type arts, cooking, blacksmithing, woodworking, knife making, tool making, things like that. While we were standing in the square, I asked Rhonda to name out some of the key buildings and tell us what they were and where they came from, just to get a sense of what we were looking at and were about to explore. The house that we're at now is the first house that you see when you enter the gate. It's to the immediate right when you walk in. We call it the Tate House, and it was in the uh, Sandy Mountain Post Office in Llano County. So it traveled the greatest distance to get to us. On around the square, the big pink dance hall came from near LaGrange, a little community called West Point. It was sitting on the east side, no, westbound side, I'm sorry, westbound side of 71 when you're heading from LaGrange into Austin. The White House next to it, the Ainsworth Wright House, was on land around where the Miller's development is now in Austin, um, kind of probably where the Dell Children's Center in that area. The house next to it, the Orsay House, the little green one, was downtown Austin on Natchez between 9th and 10th. And I've had a lot of unusual things happen that we can't explain. Here in the area where we're sitting tonight, right in the Sprinkle Corner Village, we call it, I was sitting with another volunteer one afternoon and we were talking about staying the night. The Halloween event was coming up, and we sometimes spent the night out here. We were talking about the next time that we could spend the night, and I was commenting that it might be a while because some things had changed, and I didn't have as much free time. And there were, at the time, we didn't have lighting installed in the area, and there were these shepherd's crooks, like you had plants on, stuck in the ground. There were four of them on the corners of the square, 
and they had lamps hanging on them and one that was kind of behind the other volunteer's shoulder I could only see the top of it and it just started shaking really really hard and just whipping like somebody was jerking it and she had young children and I thought that one of her kids was probably on it because there's no wind and I couldn't see anything on the top of it like a bird and so I leaned around her and said stop as I leaned around her and the thing stopped immediately there were no kids anywhere around. There was nothing on it. The kids were all off in the parking lot. So whatever it was that was shaking, it stopped when I said stop at least. My name is Kit. I started volunteering at Pioneer Farms with my family when I was 13 years old. I've been out there, let's see, 15 years that I've been affiliated out there in some capacity or another. The most recent experience that I've had out there was this last October, I was pregnant with my daughter and I was sitting talking on the porch in front of the general store with some friends. And we were talking about the different ghosts at the farm and wondering what my daughter's experiences would be and if she was going to grow up out there. And we hear footsteps come down the road and up the steps. We're like, well, Maybe she called something, and then the empty chair that was sitting in our group creaked like someone sat down on it. And that was this last October, and I actually have not been out to the farm since then. The other thing that's happened up here in the village is that this greenhouse called the Orsay House, and it moved here probably about 12, 11 or 12 years ago, I guess. And there was a volunteer who was carrying some supplies for the activity he was doing that day. And he was carrying them into the house. The front door has a pretty heavy spring on it, so it closes automatically. And you can just push it open fairly easily, but it will immediately close behind you if you let go. So he was walked up to the just the steps. He hadn't even made it all the way to the steps from the gate when the door opened. And it stayed open for him to walk up the steps into the house put down his load, and then the door closed gently behind him. So he kept going back. He went outside, and he tried several different things, stomping on the floor and jumping on the porch, trying to get the door to open again, and it wouldn't repeat it. I've seen an apparition at that site. Um, We call it the man in black just by the description. He's very tall, and he's just a, a black shadowy shape. And he was leaning against the fence. I was out here really late one night with some event prep. I was the last one to leave. I had driven around to make sure everything was locked, and I was driving back up the road past the house, and it really startled me to see a man standing by the fence. And then I blinked, and he was gone. And I drove back and forth and walked back and forth trying to figure out maybe it was a a shadow from my headlight, but I couldn't recreate that shape again or anything similar to it. We moved on from the Green Orsay House, which was the last house on the Caliche Trail leading out of the square. On our tour, we got reports of general sightings and experiences on the land, not tied to specific buildings or spaces. So I'll do my best to place those in the appropriate spots along our tour. And at this moment, we were making our way towards the distant tree line, approximately half a mile from the square. And during this long trek is when more stories of the man in black began to emerge. My name is Catherine. I've been volunteering here at Pioneer Farm since I was nine. So we've had a lot of different 
experiences out here. I do a lot of just the daily living interpretation, and so a lot of my stories are just with um, like the houses in general, that kind of thing. One of them I remember when I was young, and we were walking around the farms, uh, my sister and I, and one of her daughters we were walking around, and we saw this man, he's dressed all in black and had a black coat, it's like a big duster, and he was standing along this path, and we got kind of freaked out because just you know this random dude is there, <laughs> and um, and we were just walking, and he would kind of walk along behind us, staying at the same distance along, and there were several times where he he would just pop out and always be on that path, just, and we never talked to him, and he never talked to us, but he's been seen several times. I know that some people have said that. At the Halloween events, he sometimes tries to stop people from coming down, and he'll tell them, "No, turn around. You need to. You need to go back. You can't come this way. Whatever." Um, but he's not a volunteer, and he looks exactly the same for the past, you know, 20 years. So, Catherine reminded me of the story, uh, the Man in Black, and the Halloween event. Our Halloween event trail is separated into three areas. One is nothing scary one is moderately scary and the other is is in the woods and it's pretty pretty frightening and the first year that i opened that trail i had said that it's not recommended that children under about 13 or 14 go down there and absolutely they should have parents with them if they went and then i started getting reports i was up here in the village and I started getting visitors coming and complaining to me that they couldn't go onto the red trail. We've color-coded them, uh, green, yellow, and red, because it's a, a simple pattern for people to, to know for the, the ratings on the trail, the level of scare. And so they were, we wanted to go on the red trail, and one of your volunteers wouldn't let us. He turned us away and told us that the children were too young and not allowed. And so... Uh, my volunteers are not instructed to do that so let me send somebody down there so I sent a runner down and she said there's no one in the area that they described and it was right at the entrance because I had these posts wrapped in red lights and that was the entrance into the red trail area and they said the person is blocking that and won't let us through well there was no one there but I had a volunteer on either side of it some distance but still within sight of that area. And so I asked them what was going on, and they said there hasn't been anyone there. People just approached that and turn around and leave. We figured they changed their minds. And they described him as a tall man completely dressed in black. A couple of months after we started there, we had a birthday party. And as part of the birthday party, the birthday girl wanted to try to scare everybody. So she led them on this wild trail, and my sister and a friend and I dressed up and hid in the woods to help her scare them. And so I'm laying in the ground wearing all camouflage, had my face painted and everything, and I'm laying on the ground, and I see a blue light that almost looks like a cell phone light walk down the road in the opposite direction from the party. I thought it was one of the adults had taken a phone call. My sister was across the road from me a little further down, and she thought one of the adults had taken a phone call, but they never passed us. Like, the light passed me, but it didn't reach her it disappeared neither of us ever found the person on the return trip so when we went back to the party a few minutes later we're like hey who is out there all of the adults were accounted for all cell phones were accounted for no one could ever figure it out and everybody thought it was everyone else 
couldn't have been me. It couldn't have been my sister, and it couldn't have been any of the adults in the party. So we have Walnut Creek right on our borders, and sometimes we used to go down there to wade in the creek and that kind of thing. And one day we were going down there, and there's actually a place in the creek where pioneers used to cross with their wagons. Two or three years after we started there, I was working as a tour guide. I was leading a group of Boy Scouts down a nature trail. And there's a section of the creek that used to be part of the old Cameron wagon roads. As we were approaching it, we heard this horrible scream and the sound of wood splinters and shouting and then silence. And we heard a big crashing noise and we heard people saying, oh, the wagon stepped over, get him out, get him out, get him out. And we heard like kids crying and whatever. And just, it sounded honestly like a wagon train was going across the creek and that a wagon had tipped over. It was the craziest thing. I ran down into the creek bottom, into the creek bed itself, and a couple of the dads came with me because we thought for sure there were people there. It was perfectly still. The fish were at the top. Nothing had happened. And it was completely still and just completely like normal. Like, I don't even think there was a breeze that day. So we could never quite trace back, but we all heard it. Eight Boy Scouts, three dads, and myself, and we all heard the exact same thing. It was scary. We were now so far away from the front entrance and town square that I could no longer see them. We had pushed further down the trail and were now passing by an old homestead known as the Kruger Farm. The group that was with me tonight didn't have any reported experiences here, but ironically enough, they informed me that this tiny homestead's owner's first name was Frederick, but in no way had any connection to the character from the Nightmare on Elm Street films. But as we moved past this site, I noticed the trail was getting much darker. The woods seemed to bottleneck at this point along the Caliche path and started to line both sides of the trail now, and the amount of trees and foliage was growing. I could also hear frogs and more insects. I knew we must be approaching the banks of Walnut Creek. As the trail pushed into the darkness of the trees, I noticed it cut off on a smaller trail to the right and led downward into a flat, large opening of land. Through the darkness, I could make out something in the distance. It was faint, but as my eyes adjusted, they could make out a light-colored teepee. The Tonkawa Camp, the Native American encampment, is on the banks of Walnut Creek, and there's about a five, 600-year-old oak tree there. We have archaeological evidence that the Tonkawa tribe did camp there. They're nomads. They would come back to this area. It held some significance to them. And being on the banks of a creek, there was plenty of fish and, and turtles and things that they could eat, as well as a lot of berries and things to forage in the area. So we've had some experiences there. Um, there was one morning, I was out here really early. I was getting set up for my daughter's wedding. And I was hauling some equipment down past there. And there was a, a man in Native American costume standing beside the road. And I started to say something and then he disappeared. Uh, I haven't seen him since, but one of my daughters a few weeks later was walking past the Tonkwa camp one afternoon and saw a man that matched that description walking around the camp and she didn't recognize him. So she went to meet him and talk to him and he ducked into a teepee. There's only one way in and out of a teepee. So she went to tell him to be careful because sometimes wasps will build inside the teepee. The teepee was empty. This is Michael Ward. I'm chairman and CEO at Pioneer Farms. I've had two experiences I can tell you about. 
One was in an area along Walnut Creek where the Tonkawa Indians are known to have camped back in the early 1800s. The experience there was in the fall, two or three years ago, it was kind of foggy. There was kind of a cool front that had moved in, and there was a low fog that was clinging the ground underneath the 500-year-old oak tree and all along the creek. There was the wind completely quit. There was no air movement at all. And I was standing up by this 500-year-old oak tree and noticed that there were what appeared to be figures coming through the fog. You could see the fog disturbed as they were kind of walking through or moving through. I initially thought it was air currents, but there was no wind. And it was not just one, but there would be one come through the fog and disturb the fog, and then the fog would settle down, and then there was another one that came through. And then in another area, there was another one coming through. I don't know what these were, but there was obviously something moving through the fog that you could clearly see. It was almost unnerving, but I remained quiet and just watched. I don't know what these movements were, but it has been suggested this this may be some early settlers, or it may even be some of the Tonkawa, the spirits who were moving through that area. I'm generally skeptical of stories about ghosts and this type of thing, but there was definitely something that night that was moving through that fog in the bottoms along Walnut Creek where the Tonkawa Indians once camped. They were between the big oak tree and the creek down where the Tonkawa actually camped. That said, though, there's Tonkawa campsites that have been documented various places all through the Pioneer Farms property. Others have have seen shapes in the area, um, gray, misty shapes. Sometimes it looks like a line of people walking across. Um, other times it may be one person, looks like one person just runs off into the bushes. There's also a little girl that's been seen there. Most often the little girl is seen by other children. She watches them. Sometimes she's up in the tree. Sometimes she's lying at the base of the tree. Some children will come and ask, why was that little girl sleeping by the tree? And we have stories that the Jordan-Bachman family, that Mrs. Jordan and one of her daughters were out one day walking, and they came across a little Native American girl who had fallen out of a tree and broken her arm. And they tried to take her back to the house to set her arm. It was a really severe break. And she was frightened and ran away from them. And then the story is that a couple of weeks later, they found out that the little girl had not survived her injury. So some think maybe that's the little girl that people are seeing. We've heard giggles in various areas, sometimes around the tree, sometimes in other areas of the farm. One volunteer was very frightened when he was in the office one day and something tapped the window and giggled. He didn't want to be out here by himself after that. Another man was here for the uh, movie rental. He had provided horses for the film and he was staying on site with his horses. He had a, a camper trailer and he was out here by himself overnight one night and the door to his trailer kept opening and he would go close it lock it and it would open again after about the third time he was getting really frustrated so he stepped outside and heard a little girl giggle he never saw anything but that ended it 
as soon as he went outside to look around, then he could go back inside, close it, and get a, a night's sleep without it opening again. By now, we were standing at the Tonkawa encampment, and Volunteer Chuck walked me over to the 500-year-old oak tree they'd been referring to. It was a towering oak, mostly silhouetted by the midnight blue sky tonight, but even in the darkness, I could sense its size and the history it had been witness to all these years. This tree is about 500 years old. It's, <laughs> that's Henry. Um, it's got the lightning strike on it. It's starting to, um, or you can see where it's bowling. On a good day, you can follow that lightning strike walking back and forth. You can follow it all the way to almost the very tip of the tree. This tree, being as old as it is, then there probably were no generations of Tonkawa that didn't remember this tree as a landmark by the time the settlers got here. So that's, that's a landmark. That's why this was a camp area. The other side of the creek, we also own another almost 50 acres, but it's all protected, so we don't even open that to the public. So far, I'd only traveled about half the length of the trail around the farm, but my notebook had a ton of notes in it already. First, there were the encounters with a man in black who may or may not have been the same presence at the Orsay house known to open doors for volunteers, and who may be responsible for turning Halloween attendees away from the scary trail, and could also be the one spotted following volunteers along the trail. The strange sounds of the wagon in the creek heard by Kit and Catherine intrigued me. And lastly, the many sightings of Native American spirits throughout the property especially concentrated around the Tonkwell camp along the banks of Walnut Creek, was significant to me. But what was worrying me is that we still had more walking to do, and unbeknownst to me, we hadn't even hit three of the buildings on the farm where a significant amount of experiences are had. When we get back from this short break, we'll finish the tour of Pioneer Farms, visiting the original homestead of the property, an old red barn where sightings of a cowboy have been reported, and lastly, the Bell House where volunteers have had the most unexplained experiences on the farm. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop, custom printed t-shirts made in Austin with love. Now, there are many reasons why I love this family-owned print shop and why Oh Boy is my go-to shop for all things Night Owl, but let me pick one to rave to you about today. Have you ever ordered custom tees from an event or bought some from your favorite band or company? only to realize that they're thick, scratchy, and look like you're wearing a bag that isn't very flattering on you? Well, that's one thing that won't happen to you when you're with Oh Boy Print Shop. They offer a variety of t-shirts to provide the right choice to meet your needs. I myself prefer comfortable, slightly fitted tees that look and feel awesome enough to wear every day, either by themselves or under a throwover shirt or sweater. Oh Boy Print Shop helped me pick out a tee that fit those needs, and honestly, when I open my closet in the morning, I skip all my other tees and go straight for the Night Owl shirt, because it's the most comfortable and flattering tee in my entire closet now. Oh Boy's aim is to provide you with the options that help you get the product that meets your every need. So, there's no more need for hesitating. Order your first batch of custom printed tees with Oh Boy Print Shop today, and you'll be in great hands. Plus, now you can get $50 off your first order by simply mentioning the Night Owl Podcast. So what are you waiting for? Visit ohboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. Before we continue on, I have one fun new announcement and a couple of things I'd like to bring to your attention, listeners. As you all know... This show is a huge passion project of mine, and I literally gave up all my free time to make this all possible. 
I've been working hard to come up with ways to expand our show's business prospects and provide unique experiences exclusively for listeners. I came up with the idea of creating special cocktail offerings inspired by our show and the various locations that we've been to. The idea was that the drinks would be designed with the spirits in mind and would only be available to those who listen to our show. A portion of every sale made from this night out hidden menu comes directly back to the show. After pitching this idea to many venues, the clay pit owner Bali was excited to get this going. Myself, Sarah, and their amazing bar manager Mark got together and crafted four special cocktails inspired by the spirits haunting the clay pit's historic building. So as of today, you can visit the clay pit Ask the bar for the Night Owl Podcast Hidden Spirits menu and have a drink in honor of the spirits and the show. And please do, because every time you or your friends order off this menu, you're having a drink in support of the show. All four of these specialty cocktails are unique and delicious, but allow me a moment to highlight our signature drink, the Night Owl Martini. It features Weller Special Reserve Bourbon, house-made cold brew, and ancho chili liqueur, just to name a few ingredients. This drink is really cool with just a touch of spice that's sure to elevate anyone's spirit. The menu also features cocktails for the three spirits there, April, Stedman, and Dowdy. So head on over to the Clay Pits Bar, ask for the Night Owl Podcast's Hidden Spirits menu, and raise a glass to you, the spirits, and the show. More details about this Hidden Spirits menu can be found on our website, thenightowlpodcast.com. At this point in the night, Rhonda and the team led us out of the Tonkawa camp and back onto the trail, looping back around in the direction of the entrance. We still had a little over a quarter mile of the trail to cover and several more buildings to see. And the first one we came up to on the trail back was one of the only original buildings remaining on this property. It's called the Texian Farm, but is sometimes referred to as the Jordan Bachman Homestead. In the original house for this property, is the Texian farm. It's the Jordan Bachman Homestead house. There's been reports of a child running around the place and jumping on the bed. Volunteers stayed there overnight one night and woke up in the middle of the night hearing a child laughing and she rolled over. She was sleeping on a cot in the parents' bedroom and when she turned over facing the bed, she said she saw a child in a, a nightgown jumping on the bed and laughing. My name is Laura, and back in 2004 or 5, we had started volunteering at a Pioneer Recreation Center called Pioneer Farm. I was really enjoying my time there, and we had a lot of fun. I was working at the homestead, which is the middle-class farm at the center there, and my friend Heather and I, we were closing up shop and had just gone out and were sitting on the porch talking about life, and we heard movement from inside the house and we had just locked up there was no one inside and we heard soft organ music start playing from the keyboard which was in the parlor there it didn't have any sort of scariness i mean we were a little freaked out it was like 10 years old but it was just pretty music like you always hear in ghost stories how people have this ominous feel or something but no it sort of just was someone was home playing the organ it was kind of peaceful but it might be creepy because it was no one in there, but I don't know, it was just sort of a interesting experience. My daughter, Caredwin, and I, my youngest, were out here really late again one night. She helps me with all of the events, so that keeps us out here pretty late sometimes. And we were just locking up the Texian farm. We'd set the lights, and we were just leaving, and the 
doors all have ropes across them to keep visitors out when we're open to the public. So we had taken the ropes down to open the doors and get everything set, and we kind of hooked them onto the hooks so they weren't dangling. And we started out the door to lock up, and she almost fell. And she said the rope came out and just wrapped around her leg a couple of times. And she tripped, almost fell. So something didn't want her to go home that night. We've had knocks and bumps in the house that we can't find. And any time you start looking to pinpoint exactly where it's coming from, it moves to another part of the house. Another time that someone was staying the night, and it was winter and really cold, and he had put his cot in the parlor next to the fire, and he'd gone to sleep in his sleeping bag and had an extra wool blanket on him because it was really a cold night. And during the night, he woke up, and he was freezing, so he felt to pull up his blanket, and it wasn't there. And so he turned on his flashlight and started looking around, and he found his blanket folded neatly on the foot of his cot. So I didn't volunteer very much after I graduated high school. I had a husband and a job and all that stuff, so I could really only volunteer on special occasions. There was one night that my son and I were out there for a Halloween event, and I was closing up the house. I was the last adult on that particular site. This was at the Texian Park, and I had him sitting on the porch in his stroller, and I'd walked through the house and closed all the windows and was about to lock the last room, and my son starts laughing at something, and I thought it was his reflection so I leaned around the corner to see what he was laughing at and you know under the assumption that it was his reflection and realized that the window to the house was open so I go back inside and I close the window feeling a little you know he's laughing into a dark empty room but these two they come up with all kinds of creative stuff (laughs) so I lock the house and I push the stroller part of the way down the ramp and I go to check the locks one more time because I'm going to be the last adult in the area. He laughs again, and this time I turned to see what he laughed at, and I didn't see anything. But the wall that he was sitting in front of looking at laughed back at him. Leaving the Texian farm, we were making our way back toward the town square. And in the distance, I could see it now. But to our left, I could actually see a large red barn. It would have just been a silhouette in the darkness had it not been for a bright moon that night and the sharp contrast of its red paint against the midnight blue sky. This was the Scarborough Barn, and it was our next stop. The Scarborough Barn, Big Red Barn, there's a cowboy that stays around there. He's been seen a few times, and sometimes a cowboy hat, sometimes not. And he's been seen interacting with the horses or just leaning against the fence or walking through the barn on several occasions. Um, another story for the Scarborough Barn is that one of our volunteers was walking past there and saw cows where we haven't had cows in years. Actually, this was really recently. Um, I came out and it was about 9.30 in the morning and I was heading down to one of the sites and I saw um, a guy in brown pants and white shirt and a vest and he was leaning some cows around into the barn and I was like, oh, okay, it must be Jordan, who is one of the workers here. And then later I got home and I said, hey, well, I asked Rhonda, why was Jordan moving the cows? And she said, we don't have any cows. And I said, we don't? Because I, I thought he was moving them. She's like, you know, we, don't have, we haven't had cows in, in years. So I don't know who it was or where the cows came from. But The farm has no cows. 
have not had cows at that barn for several years, and so there couldn't have been anyone leading cows out of the barn that day. One day when I was out doing some errands or something out at the farm, I was walking past the Scarborough barn, and there was a man out in the middle of the field with the horses. Not sure what he was doing, but he was just out there with the horses. We were closed, and so nobody's supposed to be on site, and even when we're open, nobody goes out in the animal pens. So I jumped the fence and went walking out to him. He was probably 40 yards out. I got about halfway there, and the man walked between the horses, never looked at me, just going about his business, walked between the horses. That was it. There was nobody there. He walked between the horses and just disappeared, wearing a button-up shirt, blue jeans, boots. I don't remember if he had a hat. I don't think so. Just a normal guy. So the man that had seen this person at the barn came up to the general store where I was working and asked me if anyone had come past, if there were any other visitors or volunteers on site. And I said, no. The last person pulled out of the parking lot about an hour or more ago. There are no more cars in the parking lot. And no one's passed me, so he described the man, and I didn't recognize this person from the description. Leaving the Scarborough barn, we now were approaching the last house with reported activity. And as we approached it, it was easy to see in the darkness. It was a big, bright yellow house with a white picket fence. This was the Bell House. The Bell House was on the banks of Brushy Creek in Round Rock. And it was the summer home, kind of the vacation-type home, of Judge James Bell and his wife Catherine. In 1880, he gave that house over to his oldest son when he got married. So it went into the possession of Barclay Bell, and Barclay sold it about 1896, I believe, when he and his family moved to the Panhandle to start a sheep ranch. We've had a lot of activity. Some say it's Mrs. Bell still there protecting her house and and doing her, her daily duties. We've had doors open, on command. There are times that the lock will stick. There was one night that I, no one could get the door open. The key wouldn't even turn in the lock. And so I put my hand on the door and said, hey, I'm here and I really need to get in the house tonight. Would you mind opening the door? And the knob turned and the door opened and I hadn't even turned the key. So from lock to open. Um, windows, sometimes you can ask for the window to be opened and you, you'll be fighting with it and it won't open and then you'll ask and then you can open the window very easily. The bell house itself had a lot of, like, doors would open, windows would close, things that were unlocked would lock, things that were locked would unlock. The next thing I remember for sure that we were like, yeah, there's definitely someone in this house was my cousin and I were having a mock argument because she decided she didn't want to eat Brussels sprouts or whatever the vegetable of the day was. And we got in an argument, and a third-party voice that didn't belong to anyone we knew goes, Oh, no, girl, you eat your vegetables. Never could figure out who it was. That one, that one scared us. We left the house for a little while. Um, smell of perfume is really strong in the house from time to time. We were there one night really late again and started smelling it by the front door. And as we walked through the house, locking up the house and making sure it was secure for the night, the smell followed us all the way to the back door, and it left us when we crossed the threshold. 
and others have reported the smell there too. It's a very nice floral scent that comes through from time to time. Um, and one of the weirder experiences I ever had, I don't know if this would count as like a ghost story or what, but one day I went into the bell house and I heard some people talking in the parents' bedroom and I'm thinking, okay, no one's supposed to be in here right now, so I should go and see who it is. So I get closer and I hear people say, hey, have you met the new volunteers? I'm thinking, oh, great, who, there's people just, some volunteers and they're hanging out. And then I stop and then I hear myself Responding and saying, yeah, I met them. They're really nice. And it was this whole conversation that I and another volunteer had had the year before. And it was like the house was replaying this entire conversation verbatim that we had had. It was the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. Other volunteers have had experiences with a woman singing, and that one was actually caught on a videotape or an audio tape in the house one night. We had left some audio running in the house just out of curiosity one night. Reviewing it, there was a woman humming, and there hadn't been anyone in the house that night. Um, others have stayed the night in the house and reported waking up during the night to hear a woman singing when there were no other women except the one staying in the house, and she wasn't singing. One time I was in the women's parlor, and I heard a woman who I'm assuming was Mrs. Bell, and she was really upset, and she was talking about how it's Christmas time, and the cook just quit, and what is she going to do, because it's Christmas time, and everything's going to be a disaster, and you know, we, we don't have time to go and hire a new cook, and we're going to have a Christmas party, and blah, blah. And so it was just, she was super upset because the cook had quit on her. A photography session in the house one night was really funny. They were doing a, a photo shoot for a book about the red light district in Austin. And so they had some women portraying a brothel in the house. So they were just in Victorian undergarments. And one was posing in the gentleman's study, and she was leaning on the fireplace a bit on the mantle and posing in front of it. And when she left, she started walking across the room, and a lamp globe off one of the kerosene lanterns came up and across the room and crashed to the floor behind her. So there's some speculation that maybe Mrs. Bell wasn't quite pleased with a woman in her husband's study. One of the spirits in the Bell House is the spirit of Catherine Bell. She was the lady of the house when it was first built. It was their country home and it was their, her husband was a politician and so it was their safe place away from all the hustle and bustle and stress that would be the wife of a political figure. It was her safe haven. They raised four children between that house and their house in downtown Austin. And so she has a certain, she has certain expectations for people who visit her house. I know other volunteers have had difficulty with her being stubborn because she felt that they were not being respectful enough personally. I've never had any issues. I assume that it was Mrs. Bell that scolded my cousin for not eating her vegetables and I am under the impression that a lot of the doors and windows that won't close or open on their own are probably hers. I know because we have the history of the house, it was moved to that location from somewhere else. So I, I do know who was in it and who built it and over the 15 years I've talked to different people who I, I have known from the history have lived in the house and the only one who's ever seemed to respond back to me was Mrs. Bell because a door won't unlock. And I'll say, Mrs. Bell, I really need to get in. And then the door will unlock, like without the keys and in the lock. That's how I've come to connect that it's her that's in the house. 
One volunteer had a candlestick start spinning in the holder and shoot up and across the room. And he tried to get the candle back in the holder and it wouldn't fit. The base of the candle was too big to go back in the holder. And then my sister actually went into the women's parlor one night. We were at a birthday party here. And she went into the, into the parlor and it was nighttime. And it was suddenly all lit up. And she saw a young woman sitting on a couch playing a harp. And it was just all beautiful, and she was all dressed up, and then suddenly it all went dark again, and it was just back to what had been going on at the birthday party. Judge Bell has been seen by our volunteers sitting at the card table. They said he had a pretty bad hand of cards that night, but just head and shoulders in the chair. Another time where, which this actually happened several times, where around the farm we'll hear a music box coming from the bell house um, and I don't know why or but it's always it's always a music box and it's always like these same little trinkling notes there was one afternoon it was a Sunday afternoon it was winter so it was really kind of cold outside and we had the door all the doors and windows closed to Bell House and there were five adults in the the house. We were sitting and three of us were sitting in the hall and two were standing in the doorway to the parlor. And my daughter's harp was in the house at that time. And it was, there was a lull in our conversation and everybody was just sitting there kind of relaxing. And we heard this scrape on the floor and a bump. And then it was like someone had, it sounded like someone had just run their fingers across the strings of the harp. And the two people standing in the doorway of the parlor said it felt like something, a a child had walked between them. And then that the harp had actually moved, physically moved. It like tipped a bit and then set back up. The second story I'll tell you involves the bell house and a painting of one of the bell daughters, who it's my understanding passed away when she was 10, 11 so years old. There's a painting of this daughter that hangs in the parents' bedroom over the fireplace. It's a very distinctive painting because it has very piercing eyes, which when you look at the painting, it's, it's a little bit startling. In the evening, in the fall, about two years ago, I had a volunteer call me on the cell phone and say, you need to come over here and see this. It's unbelievable. So I came over. It was right at dusk. This girl's eyes followed you as you walked around the room. And I've since been told that this is either because her spirit is still in the house or it's because it's an optical illusion. The way the painting was done, the eyes are so piercing that no matter where you stand in the room, they're going to be appearing to look at you. I can tell you though that whether I moved all the way to one side of the room, whether I came back all the way in front and went to the other side of the room by a window, but it looks like this little girl in this painting is continuing to look at you. Now, the thing that I find somewhat remarkable about this is that there's been paranormal experts come to Pioneer Farms that have documented some kind of presence in that house. And they've documented the fact that it is a smaller presence maybe not quite an adult presence. And I've often wondered whether this little girl, whether her spirit may still be in that bedroom and whether she may still be watching things in that bedroom through that painting. I was about maybe almost 13. Went into the bell house, which is the big yellow house at the top of the hill. I went into 
get something. And when I went in, it looked like the furniture had been moved around a bit. And then I realized it wasn't even the same furniture. And when I turned around to go ask why the room had been moved, everything went back to how it was. And then after thinking about it for a couple days later, I realized like the scene out the windows and stuff looked like it might have been a different season. It was only for a couple of seconds that I saw it, but it just looked different. Like I had seen a flash from the past or something, just a brief echo of what had once been. It was pretty neat. Any volunteer who's been there and spent any amount of time at Pioneer Farms has some kind of story to tell. There's something that's been encountered at every site. Paranormal investigators have come out a few times and they have their own stories to tell of experiences that they've had while there and things that they found on their recordings and films. Not really much else has happened that was like noteworthy. A couple instances where we were there at night and we saw people walking down the path or lights moving through the woods. I don't know, there was always sort of a very nice homey feel, like they were happy that we were showing people how they lived. They were happy we were recreating their lives and honoring their memories. I think people like their space. They like where they were, and if they really loved a place or an area, I think they left an imprint of themselves. Kind of like how when I saw the flash of the room in the past, I think that memories and strong emotions are recorded on places. I don't necessarily think the people are actually there. Like, I think their spirits may have moved on, but I think their emotions, their presence, their feel has been imprinted on places. Maybe a little wacky, but I think maybe whole events are recorded on the places where they take place. That the actual spirits may not be there, but the event itself has been imprinted if it was like a super emotional event on the location where it was. Our first tour around this beautiful historic farm was coming to an end. Alexis and I had walked into every building, taken readings, and jotted down notes from all the eyewitness testimony at this site. But much like Laura just mentioned, I too wondered how much of what people have experienced here was simply energy, an imprint of what was once here. This place has such a rich history that a theory like this seems most plausible if one believed in residual hauntings or the stone tape theory, which speculates that inanimate materials absorb energy from living beings, and long after they've gone or passed, the materials can manifest that energy and replay it back, like an audio recording or videotape. And in a place like Pioneer Farms, with over a dozen original Pioneer homes and furnishings, not to mention a 500-year-old oak tree, this theory actually holds a lot of water for this particular case. But the good news was that this was just our first walk around this farm we were taking tonight. Because I'd just gotten a text from Sarah informing me that she'd pulled into the parking lot at the entrance of the farm and was waiting for us. The night was young, so we headed back to Sprinkle Corner Village to pick Sarah up and take a second walk around this incredible farm. Soon enough, I hoped we'd have some answers for the numerous unexplained phenomena reported here at Pioneer Farms. Thanks for listening to episode 18 of the Night Owl podcast. Our investigation into Pioneer Farms will continue in episode 19, which releases on May 27th. In it, 
clairvoyant friend Sarah joins us for a walk around the entire property to see what she can uncover about the unexplained happenings at this site. Be sure to join us as we tackle our largest investigation to date. Sarah struggles with whether or not she can handle such a location, and I begin my treacherous dive into historical research for this case. Can't wait until May 27th? Don't worry, our next Campfire episode will be available on May 13th. So in the meantime, you can check that out. I'd like to take a moment to give some special credit to a person whose contributions to the show often go unsung. But honestly, without him and his incredible musical talents, this show would not be where it is today. Our show's composer, Nicholas Fair, a.k.a. Gnosis Antiquarius, has breathed life into our stories in the subtle yet powerful way that he can through the haunting melodies he crafts. For the better part of 20 years, he's used temperamental instruments to weave a deliberate aesthetic of phantasmagoric introspection. These finite compositions, like fragmented dreams, are at once both experimental and ancient, and you can hear it and feel it in his work. For the Pioneer Farm series, Nick took on a challenge to embody the sounds of the Blackland Prairie during the 19th century. He envisioned phantom melodies from the past, pulsing and droning reaching for something or someone to attach themselves to in the hopes of finding new life. He was drawn to simple instrumentation that one could associate with the time period in which the farm was occupied, organ, harmonica, and acoustic guitar. You'll be hearing much more from our show's composer as the show continues to grow. Nick's been with me from the early days in college as a filmmaker, composing many shorts and feature films of mine. I'm so glad to have him and his unbelievable musical talent on this team. If you love what you're hearing on the show and want to explore more of Nick's other works, you can get a link to his website by going to our website, thenightoutpodcast.com, and clicking on our team tab. And if you're looking for a composer who can tackle any genre or mood, I couldn't recommend Nick enough. I'd like to thank my team, Sarah, Alexis, and Franklin for going on these crazy adventures with me, Nicholas Fair and Petey Wilder for your talented musical contributions to the show, Jennifer for keeping us organized and on schedule, my dad, Sam, for his historical research assistance, and my very supportive wife, Tao, for sticking with me all these late nights and long hours, and for taking amazing photographs on every case. And last but not least, David Dalton of Driftworks Sound for mastering every single episode on the tight turnarounds I give him. Please support their works by visiting our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, and clicking on the About tab. There you can find links to all their individual works and websites. And to help keep this show going, and my team and I fed and caffeinated, please support us for as little as a dollar a month on our Patreon page. This contribution not only helps me keep this show alive, you gain access to a ton of cool behind-the-scenes stuff. So please visit patreon.com backslash thenightowlpodcast and become a Night Owl patron today. And a special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Oh Boy Print Shop. If you have the need for custom t-shirt printing, you can feel at ease in the hands of Oh Boy Print Shop. Be sure to mention the Night Owl Podcast to get $50 off your first order. And don't forget to stop by the Clay Pit in Austin, Texas and ask for the Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu. Grab a special haunted cocktail and support the show. Thank you all and stay restless out there. This podcast was mastered by David Dalton of Driftwork Sound. If you're ready to up the production quality of your podcasts or music, go to driftworksound.com. That's D-R-I-F-T, worksound.com. And get your project mixed, mastered, or produced using well-established methods and unconventional techniques. That's driftworksound.com. And remember, your first master is completely free. <laughs>